This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles. Since the finish line, the Stanford Racing Team has made its way into the history books. But the most important thing for me is, uh, it doesn't matter who comes first. It matters that we as a, as a community achieve it. Early in a technology, um, a, a thousand flowers should bloom. Welcome to Smarter Cars. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. In today's episode, we interview Quinn Garcia, a managing director at Autotech Ventures. Quinn has a degree in applied economics and management from Cornell, where he was a leader of the Cornell Hybrid Electric Vehicle Team, and a master's degree in management science and automotive engineering from Stanford, where he worked at Stanford's Dynamic Design Lab developing autonomous vehicles. Quinn, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Great. So you're a managing director at Autotech Ventures. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your fund and, and what you guys are working on? Sure. We're a BC firm based here in Menlo Park that invests only in ground transportation related startup companies. Uh, so think things with, with tires uh, <laughs> that move people and goods along roads. Uh, and, and less so the actual vehicles themselves and even more so all the services and software related to, to non-rail ground transportation. So uh, nothing that flies, floats, or goes on rails, but rather things with, with tires. And we, uh, and we recently raised a $120 million fund uh, to invest in startups from early stage uh, through late stage uh, anywhere in the world in, in ground transport. Terrific. Why did you choose to focus on ground transport? A uh, couple, couple different reasons. So I personally, it's, I've, I've made it my career. Uh, it's my passion. All I want to do is ground transportation startups. Uh, I love this stuff. Um, from, a, from a market perspective, it's, it's an enormous empire that's undergoing disruption. right? So 100-year-old industry. And, and, and we say ground transportation as opposed to, to just automotive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that includes, you know, how do you how do you buy these things? How do you sell them? How do you rent them? Insure them? Park them? Uh, repair them? Share them? Right? And this and this applies to cars, trucks, motorcycles, uh, buses, all these different kinds of vehicles with with tires. Uh, a lot of times, the the auto industry is is referred to as being disrupted right now. But if you look at all these other ground transport. Uh, segments of the value chain, they're, they're also being disrupted. So it's, it's a great time uh, to be a VC when, when you're in a space that's, uh, that's undergoing really rapid change. And, that, and, and in this case, that rapid change uh, is being driven by, by tech giants uh, entering the space, Google, Apple, Amazon, Alibaba, et cetera, and uh, startups gaining traction uh, in the space, whether it be Lyft, Uber, Tesla, Waze, Mobileye, and so on and so forth. Great. Well, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, the autonomous vehicle space, uh, maybe by starting with uh, business models. It seems like the landscape is changing very quickly, as you, as you mentioned. There's a lot of disruption going on. Um, it seems like one of the first questions that companies uh, are facing is the question of how much to build and how much to partner it seems like uh, a few companies are looking to build an autonomous vehicle from the ground up, you know, Tesla, Neo, Zooks, maybe some others. And other companies are looking to partner to combine, you know, uh, existing automakers with a technology layer. 
uh, and perhaps also with a distribution platform like Lyft. Um, it, it seems much harder to build the whole car, but do you think there's an advantage to these companies, uh, you know, building the whole car from scratch in this, this full stack approach? Or do you think it's better for companies to focus on the, the technology and then partner with traditional OEMs? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I do. I, I'll only speak for our firm and what we're interested in, whether, you know, whether it's better uh, for you know, Tesla's approach or Fisker's approach or Zook's or, or otherwise. Um, that remains to be seen. I, I would say it's, there's been very few car makers that have successfully emerged um, over the past couple decades here, um, especially these car makers that started as, as startup companies. So it's a really tough business to get into. Right. Uh, as far as what attracts uh, our firm, we tend to shy away from highly capital intensive uh, business models uh, that, that involve, for example, producing a whole vehicle or producing a whole battery pack uh, or, even, or even producing a whole full stack autonomous system. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and full stack autonomous isn't even in the same ballpark in terms of capital intensity as, as producing a whole vehicle. So you can argue that it's, it's mainly software and services. Um, but uh, we, we don't think that there's so many customers out there uh, that are willing to buy full stack autonomous solutions uh, to justify the number of startup companies and corporations that are that are actually developing all these full stack solutions. So we think it's possible that there will be other other cruise automations or or autos or automaticas that uh, that get acquired along the way. Uh, but we, we don't think that there's going to be in the long term, let's say, you know, 10 different vendors of full stack autonomous solutions, because we, we just don't think that there's enough customer uh, demand out there for that. Right. And in terms of how that kind of a stack gets integrated into the car, if you, you know, if you're talking just about the technology layer, uh, how does that fit in the current supply chain? Like, how should we be thinking about that? I know some folks, uh, maybe Aurora or others are talking about providing the hardware, the sensors, in addition to the the AI and, and kind of, as you say, putting together this package, um, how, how does that work if they want to integrate with the existing OEMs? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We, uh, so we've taken a bit more of a, a picks and shovels approach to, to investing in, in the autonomous space uh, as opposed to the kind of full stack of, of approach. And I'll, and I'll explain what that, that means. So we invested into a company called DeepScale Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's based in Mountain View that just does the perception portion of the stack. So sensor fusion uh, perception systems for human-driven and, and autonomous vehicles. Uh, and, and one of the reasons why we made that investment is because we feel there's a, it's one of the, not only one of the largest uh, problems, one of the most challenging problems in the whole autonomous stack uh, to be solved, uh, but it's also a problem that a lot of the incumbent players uh, in the automotive industry uh, don't have core competency in today. Uh, a lot of the automakers feel somewhat uh, confident in their ability to do path planning uh, right. because they've been dealing with, with vehicle dynamics for, for, for decades. And they certainly know how to do actuation, but where they felt less comfortable is in, is in perception and, and maybe to a lesser extent uh, localization. So the perception portion of the stack is, is a, a big challenging problem that, that a lot of these customers don't feel like they can, uh, they can do themselves. 
Um, and so we think there's a greater number of potential customers out there willing just to buy the perception uh, uh, portion of this. Does that make sense? Yeah, and so who would the customer be? Would it be um, someone aggregating a, a technology layer or would they sell directly to an OEM? It, it can be some. It can be either. Uh, so a company like DeepScale could sell uh, as a tier two supplier into a tier one supplier, like say a you know a Delphi or a Bosch or a a, a Visteon or a Denso or, or an AutoLeave, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, or there's cases where the, where the OEM can demand it directly, and uh, and DeepScale can be a tier one supplier supplying their their sensor fusion software directly to to that OEM both both approaches we're seeing uh, we're seeing play out with their their existing customers right and so um, th- that makes sense I, I think I understand your your thesis there and I think what you're saying with respect to um, you know focusing more on individual components or, or pieces of the of the, the supply chain rather than the whole technology layer or the full stack, including the car. Um, do you think that there's going to be vertical integration at some point? I mean, we did see GM buy Cruise. Do you think other uh, companies in this space will inevitably be bought or that there'll be kind of freestanding companies that exist selling in at different places in the stack? Mm-hmm. When we talk about uh, the ecosystem of full-stack startups, uh, so those startups, uh, I think you'd mentioned Aurora uh, earlier. Uh, Zooks is a, a full-stack automation startup uh, that is, also happens to be producing a car and, and tends to be a, a, a TNC, transportation network uh, company. So they're kind of combining you know, several different businesses all, all into one. But if you look at, say, Aurora or Newtonomy or or drive AI. These these kinds of companies tend to just do the uh, the, the full stack without you know producing the the rest of, of the vehicle. I do think that there's possibility that that some of these full stack autonomous startups are going to be acquired uh, over the over the coming years. Some of the higher flying ones um, I do think could be could be acquired and, and probably will. Uh, but given the number of them uh, that are that are out there, uh, not everybody can be acquired. And so I think there will be a lot of uh, attrition over over the coming years, as these these companies either fail to meet some of their their technical milestones, mm-hmm. um, or as the, these companies fail to just garner enough interest from from customers. Uh, if you start you know kind of looking at this oligopoly that is the auto industry, maybe there's you know 15 or or 20 different automakers globally, and if you just start looking at each one individually, uh, and and say will would they buy a full stack solution or not? As you go down the list, you, you probably find that it's the smaller, weaker of the automakers that are more likely willing uh, to buy a full-stack solution from a startup than some of the large players. So GM, well, they already acquired Cruise, so are they going to buy a full-stack solution? Daimler uh, views themselves as one of the, the strongest in, in ADAS uh, in the world, so are they going to uh, fully outsource it to a startup? If you go on and on down the list, uh, you kind of rule out quite a few customers there. Right. So I think the the second question really uh, gets at how these cars will be sold or distributed. You know, are are, are we going to see unit sales of autonomous vehicles, or will there be a complete shift to 
mobility as a service where transportation is purchased by the miles traveled. Do you have a view on that, or do you think there's a room there's room for a variety of of different uh, distribution models? Mm-hmm. I I see a, a trend towards shared use in the long term. Um, what is what does it look like in the medium term? Meaning, do we have uh, some fully autonomous, let's call it level four, or level five vehicles uh, that are privately owned for a certain period? Yeah, I could I could see that. I could see that. Uh, I, but I do see this increasing trend toward, toward shared mobility. I think that vehicles will remain a majority privately owned for, for the coming years as we transition from level two to level three into four, but we'll see increasing pre- penetration of, of shared vehicles um, over that, that same time frame, uh, particularly in urban centers. Uh, you'll see more more shared use than you will in, in rural areas. What do you think the suburban and rural use case is for uh, shared vehicles? You know, when I think about autonomous taxis or, or ride share that's autonomous, um, you know, everyone's really focused on the urban experience. But is there a, a use case where... Uh, a suburban family uh, that currently has, you know, two cars in the driveway today gets rid of those and, and moves to uh, solely uh, shared vehicles? I, I do think there's that case. Uh, I think that the, the engineering challenges of, of producing fully automated vehicles, meaning level five uh, and, and level four vehicles, uh, those challenges are greater in urban centers than they are uh, out in, in the burbs. Um, there aren't as many kind of uh, incursions. There, there aren't as many traffic lights. There aren't as many pedestrians and, and all kinds of other things that, that autonomous vehicles need to perceive and, and, right. and navigate out, out in the suburbs. You can argue that the engineering challenges maybe are a little bit easier uh, in, less, in less dense areas. But I, I think you can also argue that the economic case in, in urban centers is a little bit stronger uh, for fully autonomous vehicles. There's a little bit more incentive to, uh, to get rid of the, uh, the driver in, in the urban centers because that's where there's more, there's more collisions. Uh, there's uh, there's greater, greater challenges with, with traffic and, and parking. And there's also people with, uh, with less time uh, that they're willing to, uh, to spend driving around and, and typically more, more income in, in those urban centers. Right. What about this idea of competition? You know, you mentioned that there's so sort of only so much need for some of the autonomous technology. There's been a bit of a narrative in the press lately that there's this frantic race to, you know, develop autonomous vehicles and that car makers are incentivized to sort of rush to market uh, with this stuff. And, and we saw the criticism with Tesla over autopilot. Um, do you think that being first to market matters that much, uh, particularly if if you're talking about uh, rideshare? Mm-hmm. How do you think that's going to play out? I, I do think that being first to market uh, with with fully autonomous, you know, level five, basically vehicles that eliminate the driver, uh, is extremely important in in rideshare, uh, and I and I th- I think it's probably more important there than it is. Uh, to other players that aren't engaging as much in, in rideshare. Uh, the reason for that is that 
one of the largest costs in, in ride sharing is the, the cost of, of the driver. Uh, and so if you're able to eliminate that driver, you can have a huge economic advantage, a huge pricing advantage, uh, and, and also operational advantage uh, over uh, your, your competitor. So if you if you look at let's say Uber and Lyft here in the U.S. and we're we're investors in Lyft, so so clearly I'm biased <laughs> toward, <laughs> toward, toward Lyft. Um, but when you when you look at those two players, I I believe that um, of those those two players, if if one of them were to reach market uh, with fully autonomous vehicles in in mass, uh, let's call it six nine months before the other, I think uh, the one that reaches market first could decimate the other. Uh, there aren't there aren't too many scenarios where people say that that Lyft could kill Uber, right? Uh, but I believe that is one of those one such scenario. Remains to be seen how how they'll play out. But that's that's why Lyft, both Lyft and Uber, have been pumping serious work resources into uh, autonomous because it's uh, an existential topic for them. Yeah, I I've never really viewed uh, you know the car market as winner take all. Um, but I think in the rideshare context, what you're saying is just the ability to compete on price is going to be so impacted by autonomy that there there'll be a first mover advantage there. Yes, yes, and and I and I also believe that uh, whoever can come to market with a full level five vehicle can level the playing field. No pun intended. <laughs> uh, if you look at Uber and, and Lyft today, I think they have uh, a significant head start over a lot of the uh, the incumbent and upstart automakers in terms of operating a, a rideshare network. Uh, but I, I believe that an automaker, whether it be Tesla or GM or, or otherwise, uh, who is able to uh, produce a level five uh, vehicle, uh, that's that's a pretty powerful tool that that automaker could use to enter the the rideshare market and right. potentially catch up to Uber and, and Lyft. Just talking about the U.S. market here, but I think the same holds true in many other markets, uh, except for of course India, uh, where I don't uh, predict autonomous vehicles to come for several decades. Right. So. How many successful market participants do you think there would be for something like autonomous taxi or rideshare? Is that is there a limit there? Or, you know, we have obviously lots of different car makers today, and when we think about cars selling units off of a lot, I don't think anybody thinks that there's a you know just only a few limited number of brands that can succeed. We, you know, we have a pretty broad array of cars. Um, how do you think about that with autonomous? Is it different for selling units, different for rideshare? How, how do you think that will play out? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, uh, I either have the blessing or, or the curse uh, to have a job that requires me to think in 10-year increments. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, most, most funds are 10-year are ten ten year funds like, like ours. And, and I believe that full level five autonomy uh, will not uh, achieve mass penetration um, in this 10-year life of our fund. Uh, I think that it'll achieve minimal penetration. There may be a few, you know, some pilots and some uh, some some light penetration, but I don't think it's going to be uh, the majority of the market. Uh, maybe maybe I sound like a curmudgeon or, or conservative uh, type compared to some other people here here in Silicon Valley, but that's that's my take. And, and so I I don't 
think uh, as much in the near term about uh, about what level five autonomy means, for example, for our investment in uh, into Lyft, uh, because it's it's far enough out. Uh, if, if you think about even on a further uh, time horizon beyond beyond ten years, I I could see that the the TNC world, the you know Lyft and Uber and Ola and Didi and, and these folks. I could see it looking and smelling a lot more like the airline industry. Uh, the airline industry started out with just a few players uh, operating uh, and generating healthy margins, uh, and then and then the more the airline industry was deemed kind of a a safety critical uh, so method of, of transportation for society, the more the government started regulating it, and the more the government started regulating it. Uh, the less attractive the margins became, uh, and and I could see ride sharing uh, eventually transition in that direction, um, but again, luckily I only have to think in ten year increments. <laughs> what what happens to the value of our investment right. uh, then? So so what's the number of? I, I think your original question was, you know, what do what do we look like in terms of monopoly, duopoly, oligopoly? What what are the number of of large players um, that are that are out there operating as as a function of time, I I believe that will be a duopoly uh, in here in the U.S. for uh, for some years to come. But I do think that once level five uh, arrives, uh, that will be a reset of the market, and that and that could invite other uh, other players in. But I'm but I'm not sure just just how many. Right. So you mentioned your time horizon. So. Uh... I, I guess I can take from that that you think it's uh, it's ten years uh, at least before we get any significant adoption of of level four and level five. Is that mm, level four is a lot easier? Mm -hmm. uh, there's a very long tail of of engineering problems that need to be solved between level four and level five, and so I, I would I would probably give you a more a more bullish. Uh, Response if if we were talking about level four, but level five, you know, complete uh, elimination of, of human intervention, uh, I think is, is going to take a very long time, just because there's so many challenging corner cases that uh, that need to be uh, worked out. Right. Uh, but if we're talking about you know level well level level twos are here, level three is is here and on the way. Uh, level four, I think, is only a, a short step uh, after that. So I, I could see level four coming. Uh, within within the next ten years, but but not so much level five in mass. And do you think that level four vehicles then in the next ten years will be incorporated into rideshare systems? Where, you know, if you're from the consumer perspective, you call your your Lyft or your Uber, and sometimes you get an automated vehicle, and sometimes you get a human driver, depending on where you're going or what the weather is. Yes, I, I do. I do think that. Uh, the ride-sharing firms will, as quickly as possible, integrate uh, level four vehicles, and and I believe that they'll have geofenced uh, areas where they where they operate uh, for for a period, and and they'll have humans there overseeing the vehicles uh, until they they find that the vehicles are uh, operating reliably within that geofenced uh, area, and they'll slowly but surely uh, expand the different kind of the the operating regime of of the vehicles. Uh, in a safe way, and I'm sure there'll be mishaps uh, along the way that that will result in in setbacks, maybe for the industry or or at least for that particular company. But 
but I do think there will be that, that forward progress. And how do you feel, you mentioned level three, how do you feel about this question of uh, full autonomy versus the more gradual approach of assisted driving technology, sort of taking over more and more tasks? Uh, are you comfortable with level three vehicles or uh, I think, you know, Google has more of the approach historically of saying we, we want to go only to level four and, you know, Tesla seems to be a little bit more in the graduated uh, approach to assisted driving. How, how do you feel about that? Mm -hmm. I, I probably subscribe to the, uh, the church of, of graduation. Uh, I think that uh, we will have a slow but sure progression uh, across those different levels. Um, uh, as much as I'd love to see the jump directly to you know, level four and, and level five, I think that there's, uh, I think a lot of the pieces of the puzzle, whether they be regulatory or, or technological or otherwise, aren't quite ready uh, for, for level five. Uh, and I, I also see uh, vehicle OEMs roadmaps uh, already including level three. So whether, uh, whether we believe that we should go directly to level four, level five or not, we're going to get level three, whether we, <laughs> whether we like it or or, or not, and and I do believe that there's there's quite a few automakers um, that are out there that are are pretty well positioned and well experienced to uh, to solve a lot of the human machine interface challenges associated with level three. I think I think one of the you know the proponents of of leapfrogging directly to level four, level five claim that that having uh, human intervention in so many different scenarios is just inherently unsafe and and can't be solved. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of uh, HMI, human machine interface, and and human factors experts uh, out there who would argue that uh, that those can be solved with with enough development work. Right. So for companies that are uh, really focused on full autonomy, say level four, level five, um, how do, how do you think about time to market for these startups? Um, you know, there's a lot of criticism in the press claiming that automakers are sort of overstating their ability to get autonomous vehicles on the road, and in reality, it's going to be, you know, 10 or 20 years. Um, and I, I guess from a consumer perspective, uh, I'm not sure how we should think about that. But from an investor perspective, how, how do you think about companies, I mean, if it takes eight or 10 years before there's any revenue, how are these companies going to survive? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of them won't. Uh, I think we will see uh, a lot of attrition uh, in the, the autonomous vehicle startup space uh, over the next couple years. Uh, the ones that, that can't secure enough funding or can't meet technical milestones or, or enough customers uh, I think are going to be struggling, and, and some will some will go under. Uh, some might have uh, you know comfortable aqua hires, uh, and and I think some will will thrive. Uh, the good thing about being being a startup is you're willing to take greater risks because you don't have uh, an enormous empire to lose, like like the automakers do. And so it, it seems reasonable to believe that we're going to see startups that are there pushing the boundaries and at the forefront, just kind of, kind of like Tesla uh, has been pushing the boundaries. Uh, amongst the large automakers in terms of uh, rolling out new ADAS features that could be perceived as as risky or, in quotes, unsafe. 
Right. Turning to safety, um, how do you, how should the industry be thinking about and setting expectations around the safety of autonomous vehicles? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm a venture capitalist and, and I, uh, and I don't work in, in the auto manufacturing business. A number of my LPs uh, are, are in the auto manufacturing business, and, and so they would, they would probably give you a much more educated response on, on how their industry should, uh, should behave with, with respect to safety. Uh, that, that said, uh, one topic I've been thinking about recently is, is the airline industry uh, and how the, the government, at least here in the US, and I believe in some other, other nations, has required the airline industry to collaborate on safety topics. Um, they're required to share uh, safety data because it's in the interest, you know, the government feels that it's in the interest of society for them, for them to do that. Right. Uh, I could envision uh, a similar uh, set of regulations emerging in the auto industry at some point with, with regard to uh, to, to safety data. I don't know when and uh, and I don't know I don't know how um, but I could see I could see that that story playing out. Right. It's it's interesting because you know there's I think a group of folks who feel that um, it's actually safer to keep the human driver involved and that you know level three uh, is actually going to result in more more safety than you know level four and taking the human driver out of it. Um, and then there are other folks who say, well, okay, if we get to level four, level five, you know, how safe is safe enough? You know, how are we going to judge as a society, you know, what we're comfortable with? And you know, in the airline industry, you know, I think we certainly expect that there can be very few crashes. Um, but it's interesting to think both as consumers and as, uh, you know, an investor for you, you know, how are we going to get comfortable uh, that these companies have achieved a level of safety that is, is sort of good enough? Mm -hmm. I, I think that the U.S. government's actually on, on this topic has been really progressive and, and impressive. I, I've been pleased with the way uh, federal government has has treated the topic of of autonomous vehicles, especially passenger cars. I, I was a little disappointed to see that uh, what I what I believe is kind of a, a politically motivated uh, exclusion of trucks uh, from from the recent legislation that was passed. Mm -hmm. um, but I you know I, I get it. It's it's fine uh, as long as we're moving in in the right direction. But I do think that the government's been moving in the right direction uh, for for passenger cars. And, and one of the things that I read uh, was that, uh, that there's a kind of a, a burden of proof uh, on the, the automakers who are going to be testing uh, autonomous vehicles to show that, it's, uh, that they're at least as good as human drivers, that they're actually you know, they're at least as good as that. Maybe they're not perfect, uh, and I think the government recognizes they don't need to be perfect for society to, to benefit, but they're at least better than, than humans. And I think that's all that we as a, as a society can, can ask for. Yes, it's painful to say uh, that people are going to die, so let's make it perfect so that nobody dies. But the alternative is to have uh, 35,000 people per year die. Would you right. rather have, have 20,000 or would you rather have 35? <laughs> right. 
Right. It's interesting because, you know, people uh, say that when you drive in an automated vehicle, you suddenly appreciate what good drivers humans are and and all the reasoning and things that go into human driving but it it seems like the test is not really one perfect human driver who's not drowsy not distracted not drunk not angry you know uh and you know would that person be better than this automated vehicle but overall humans as a whole which suffer from all these defects uh and looking at the the number of you know crashes per mile driven etc um i think that's a, a little bit of a difficult distinction for people to make i think a lot of consumers think of course i'm a better driver you know of course humans can drive better um but then you look at the number of crashes and and all of these other issues and i think as a society we're going to have to um sell that message uh, effectively in order for there to be uh, adoption of, of the technology. Mm -hmm. we're, we're better than average drivers most of the time. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Quinn. Yeah, you're very welcome. That was, that was really fun. Okay. It was great talking with you. Thanks. Likewise. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks again to Quinn for joining us, and thanks to all of you for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find the show notes for this episode and all of our episodes on our Smarter Cars publication at medium.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.